0: Here's my big problem. Once when I worked at Medley Advisors, we were on a phone call with a senator from Texas and it was around the time of Enron's collapse. We were talking about the executives at Enron and you know what was gonna happen. And my boss was talking away and we were listening in and the senator just stopped at one point and said, you don't understand. I don't care what happens to Skilling and all these boys. I just want them to end up in a big dark hole with a boy called Bubba who calls them Shirley. And at that point, it just underlined one thing to me, and that is the ultimate power of government to dictate your behavior, because I've loved saying to people in the Bitcoin space, look, I think it's a great trade. You can trade this thing, it's a high beta, you know, if you wanted to store a value, precious metal, whatever. But the day that it ever becomes a big enough thing that it challenges the ability of government to control their own currency is the day that you are presented with the option of handing your Bitcoin over in the same way that you did with gold in the thirties, or, trying to keep hold of it, and if you're caught, ending up in a big dark hole with a bloke called Bubba who calls you Shirley.
1: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work, to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them, the processes they follow, and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our guest today is a diehard global macro advisor who takes the noise out of the markets and makes calm out of chaos and I'm sure you will enjoy our conversation with Julian Brigton of MI2 Partners. Julian, thanks so much for joining us today for this conversation as part of our mini-series in the world of Global Macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in a global and historical framework, and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even years and ultimately how this will impact all of us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolios. We are super excited to dive into a few different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you have a strong view on a couple of the key macro themes at the moment. And on top of this, you're very generous when it comes to sharing your views and analysis on Twitter and other platforms like Real Vision. So let me kick it off with kind of like a 30,000 feet question, which we've asked all of our guests on this series, just to put everything into context. And that's a little bit about sort of your big picture view right now. Not necessarily specifically on an asset class, but just big picture what's going on in the world, because a lot of people compare what's happening right now to events we've seen in the past, whether it's the 30s or the Japanese bubble, the tech bubble, the great financial crisis. And of course, on top of all of this, we have something called a global pandemic, which makes it a very unique time in the world right now. So I just want to kick it off and, and hear sort of how you see the world from, from where you sit.
0: Look, I'm a big believer in history. Uh, I do believe that cycles repeat themselves. I do think one has to be careful drawing too close analogies in there because I do think The world changes so we come up with new policy tools we come up with uh, new economic structures in terms of say globalization in terms of technology and so things are not always exactly the same but they are frequently quite analogous so if you you know i think one of the things that some people have really underestimated and helped us quite a lot uh, since the lows in the market is when you look at the economics for example around the world i mean this pandemic has been a total train wreck we are not going to come out of this hole but i think people have really underestimated the ability of central banks to play with their new toy in terms of liquidity and the interesting thing is, is actually it's not a new toy it's a new toy perhaps for let's say g10 countries to be playing with but actually we wrote a piece back in uh in March and, and in and reiterated again in April where we drew comparisons to Zimbabwe and Iran. And actually got a few people offended when they we said, really, what is the Fed or what's the ECB or the Bank of England or the BOJ doing any different than these countries have done? I mean, the best performing equity market of the year up until recently, I think, was the Iranian stock market as oil went negative well what did they do they printed a shed load of cash and you've got a closed economy there's nowhere for that money to go except for in the equity market and it becomes a safe haven you know somewhere where you can preserve the value of your cash because at the end of the day an equity is a claim on a tangible asset of one's you know form and so while I think there are economic comparisons I think one's got to be a little careful about drawing out price action and saying, "Okay, well, just because the economics are poor, the price action of the assets has to be poor. We use the economics and we model the economics to try and trigger the policy response function. And we have done this since really 08, because it's really that that's driving markets. And so, yes, there are many comparisons you can draw with the past, but they're not always exactly the same.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Even though I will say on this series we had uh, Lynn Alton uh, on the show, and and I think she she uh, made a very compelling case in terms of the uh, comparison to the 30s and the 40s. But as we, as we hear all the time, of course, history. It doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. and I think that's exactly mm-hmm. what your sentiment is as well. And since this is a global macro theme conversation, and we will be touching on many different topics, I, I do think though that you should probably start, if you don't mind, giving us kind of your view as to why the US dollar plays a key role in all of this, and uh, especially when it comes to kind of analyzing and forecasting many of the trends that happens, across different asset classes.
0: But it's always been my strong view that that in a world where the dollar is the reserve currency that it essentially dictates the cycle. When Raoul and I launched Macro Insiders, the first sort of video, the teaser video I did was on the importance of the dollar cycle. And when you look about it from a from a purely investment perspective, and the dollar is the denominator of most global assets. So, you know, if you destroy the value of the denominator, then that, given that it's a tangible asset, let's say, you know, let's pick something like copper or oil, as long as demand doesn't shift anywhere in the world, then if you just destroy the value of the, of the denominating currency, then that asset should rise in that currency's terms, may not change in euros, it may not change in yen, or in sterling, but it should rise in dollar terms. And that's important as well because, even if you're, say, located in Germany, like uh, you know, or managing portfolios, say, say in Germany, like Moritz is, you may frequently have a dollar benchmark, and so even if you're just managing a normal portfolio, that the effect of the dollar can have an enormous impact. The other thing is, is that we've always said that when it comes to the reserve currency, and this is particularly since 08, where we've seen this quantitative easing, call it really what it is, monetary debasement. The power of the reserve central bank is disproportionate to other central banks. And the comparison we like to say is like, look, the market likes its drugs, okay? But the ECB and the BOJ and the Bank of England can really only supply methadone to the Fed's heroin. As the reserve currency, you literally can create reflation. And ultimately, inflation, if you can debase the value of or lower the value, let's say, of that reserve currency. And so that's why it's so singularly important, because it does dictate which asset classes you should be looking at, how you should allocate your portfolio within some of those asset classes. And that's why we just think it's, it's the key thing to watch.
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, Rob. Before you jump in, I also maybe wanted to just follow up, just again as part of the context for our conversation, and maybe as a as a natural follow up to to that. And that is, you know, so okay, so where are we in the U.S. dollar cycle right now, in your opinion?
0: I think you notice when you look at the dollar cycle since, and really, we've only had a, a dollar cycle over the last fifty years, right? We've only had freely floating exchange rates in the last 50 years, um, dollar cycles seem to be remarkably consistent in both length of time and amplitude. In fact, if, you know, I'm sort of staring at a chart here in front of me, which shows the rate of change of the dollar in percentage terms. Um, and the cycle currently, which has been running, say, from 91, looks almost identical to the cycle that we ran from 76 into 2002, which was the prior dollar high. So, from a cyclical perspective, the dollar is basically should be in the process of peaking, and this should be the end of the up leg of the third cycle. We've had 372 to 79 up into the plaza record, down then into Sakaki Baru's intervention in dollar yen when he drove dollar yen up into the 2002 high, down into the GFC, and now up again. So, if you look at that cycle, that would tell you it should be now. And in fact, it's slightly overdue. And I would say that that was down to one thing and one thing in particular, and that was quantitative tightening. Janet Yellen told us that it was going to be like watching paint dry. That was plainly not true. I mean, if you look at virtually any dollar chart, from the immediate second that the Fed started to shrink that balance sheet, the dollar went. One way, and if you look at it in twi terms, it sort of went from 106 on the broad dollar trade weighted dollar index up to about 118 when they ended uh, QT. So it was really very very powerful. But that's kind of extended the dollar cycle, and then we got the COVID 19 funding squeeze, which then again you know further catapulted that classic what we refer to as the napalm run basically, when you get at what we refer to as a risk-off dollar rally. So risk is falling, stocks are falling, uh, bonds are rallying, emerging markets are getting tarred and feathered, and the dollar is rising at the same time. And because the dollar is rising, it really exacerbates that risk-off event. And we liken it to a napalm run because left to its own devices, all you will end up with at the end of the day is a bunch of smoking holes and charred bodies you'll just literally obliterate everything in its path. So that was a classic kind of funding squeeze and what was miraculous is the fed came in really aggressively and incredibly quickly and went no stop we know the risk and in actual fact they even went as far as co-opting the imf to say well we could do you know dollar funding as well. And in in a question in a three days we got basically what took them a whole year to do um, in terms of the swap lines, and then we got this whole repo facility, which was a completely new uh, concoction. So I think what they've done is they've essentially arrested the the napalm run. Now all we have done is that while we traded it, so we bought Aussie. We bought cable just above 115, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And they've been great trades. All we've really done is just reverse that funding squeeze. What happens here and now really will dictate the cycle. Because if if you're a trend follower, you know, and you look at no matter which really trend you look at, whether you look at that, uh, the Fed's broad dollar trade rated index, whether you look at Bloomberg's DXY, whether you look at Deutsche Bank's Dollar TWI, they're all pretty much of a muchness. We've had a very strong trend line since 2011. It's consistent. It's touched on multiple occasions. We got very close to breaking it a few weeks ago. It's bounced back from those levels as we got this little bit of risk off kind of wobble even though, frankly, most of this risk-off is a U.S. issue because they've been asinine to reopen uh, as quickly as they they have done in some places. But the fact of the matter is you've still got this risk-off equals dollar rally. And so we've sort of come back to those levels. Now, when I look at the dollar, there's a couple of things. I was a dollar bull and have been a structural dollar bull um, since we launched insiders like Four years ago, which I changed very slightly because I just thought FX had become very very boring at the uh, at the start of 2019, and we really just didn't play it, okay. Mm. And then I started to get a little bit more interesting because we'd finally got to what I think that cyclical point of the turn, and so I my focus turned onto more could we actually be seeing a turn. And look, I have a lot of sympathy with peers and my colleague Raoul on the macro insider product. When he talks about structural problems and shortfalls with the dollar and why the dollar is very dangerous and why it can do what it does. And he's absolutely right. I mean, the biggest problem that we've got is that the US is not running the size of current account deficit that it needs to do in order to support its status as the reserve currency. This is a classic example of what one refers to as Triffin's dilemma. And The reason for that is that we've developed uh, our own domestic oil industry or expanded the size of our domestic oil industry. And that has meant that our largest single import uh, item is no longer being imported with the same degree of gusto and size. So what's filled that gap has been capital account outflows because you have to supply the world with those dollars. The problem with capital account outflows is they're bloody fickle in a world where you can just go click and you can eliminate your Brazilian ETF holdings, you can create this inherent fragility within the system. And that's why you can get the sort of napalm run that we just saw. Um, That's why, for example, in 2019, when we got some of these emerging market tremors, you didn't see the whole sector kind of wobble, just individual blocks just imploded. And they didn't just crumble. I mean, Brazil just didn't crumble a bit it just went overnight it disappeared because it was just reliant on this flux of super hot money to keep it stable i think the good news is is that the fed essentially now through this expanded balance sheet and through these swap lines has essentially mitigated that funding shortfall they've closed the gap between global gdp which has come down but they've closed the gap between global gdp the u.s current account deficit and they've essentially filled that that hole. And their money is going to be a lot more sticky because I think they're bloody determined not to allow the dollar to strengthen. Now, that just gives you stability. It doesn't dictate what happens next. But it is usual if you look at dollar cycles, that the end of a dollar cycle occurs with the risk of dollar rally. If you look at a, a Broad trade rate of dollar index, you get crises, you know, whether it's the Latin American debt crisis in the 80s, whether it's the Asian crisis in the 90s, whether it's China's deval in 2015, 2016. They all pretty much occur at the same level of dollar strength. You then get that final push, that, as I said, the risk off dollar rally, the napalm run, but that typically is the end of the cycle. And when I look at the US, there's a couple of things that make me a little committed to the idea that this could be the top of the dollar cycle. One of them is relative US economic weakness. Even if you believe, and I'm not sure that I necessarily do, I'm not sure it really matters because the numbers would have come down anyway. But even if you believe that US unemployment has peaked and that last number of just over 14% is actually a real number and not some sort of manipulated number because they I'm not saying they did it in a Machiavellian way, but it was manipulated in the sense of how they, con- they conducted the survey. I was amused, in inverted commas, when I heard a story saying, oh my goodness, German unemployment has hit post-2015 highs, right? Well, the US just hit, if we believe the number, post-Second World War highs, and if you don't, post-Great Depression highs. The point is, is we are starting in an economic hole, which is arguably much, much deeper than many of our peers. And that is a virtue of the fact that we have a super flexible labour market. Typically, you know, many economic bulls will see that or equity bulls will see that as a strength. At times like this, it's definitively an Achilles heel because. Typically, unemployment doesn't do Vs. I mean, I think if you go back to the late 40s, the quickest trough to peak to trough that you saw was a two-year cycle. So in other words, even if you believe, and I don't, most of these people are going to get re-employed over time. But I think we could have another debate over whether that's the question or you know the case or not. This thing can just drag out for at least another 18 months. So I think the US is going to have a much bigger unemployment problem than many people appreciate. I think that's going to necessitate a hell of a lot more spending. The second problem that the U.S. has got is that if you chart U.S. domestic oil production, in other words, this growth of this shale story, particularly since 2011, it correlates very, very well with relative U.S. industrial production outperformance, okay, whether you to do that against the Eurozone or or whatever. Now, we're already seeing that sector shrink. And this is the second time that investors have been burned in the shale space. The first one being back in 2015, 2016. I do not believe that we are going to see a shale industry come back with anywhere close to the same strength and output that we had previously. And I think that will weigh quite heavily on us relative industrial production i think that's been part responsible and will be responsible for maintaining the interest collapsing the interest rate differential say to the eurozone which is important in terms of currency evaluations and i think that will not come back very quickly in terms of the interest rate differential i mean currencies generally do over time despite the fact if you look at, say, 10-year bonds, 10-year treasury spreads, and you put the euro over it, you'll see large periods of divergence. But increase most of those were a function of central bank intervention. So if you looked at, say, the euro in 08, it got all the way down to sort of 125, and then they, they launched QE1. And then the euro strengthens and the dollar weakens, and we go all the way back up to 150. 2010, the euro got down to 120. They come out with QE2, and up it goes again and reattaches itself to those interest rate differentials. Well, at the moment, those interest rate differentials will tell you 130 Mm. for euro dollar. The same is true of the relative current account deficit. That would also tell you 130. The budget deficit, I think, in the US is only going one way. I don't see that as a positive. As I said, I think you've got arguably a potentially much weaker economy here than perhaps you will have uh, in other countries. That budget deficit is already straining the treasury market. So if you look at, say, um, treasury dealers' primary holdings, okay, and let's remember one of the reasons that they launched not QE at the end of last year is because we were starting to run into problems with those primary dealers. Their balance sheets were getting constrained. By the fact that they were obliged to take down these auctions well that hasn't helped at all the fact that they've done all this buying because yields have dropped so much so the problem now is you've got a ballooning deficit current account deficit so a budget deficit you've got a large current account deficit you've got a narrowing interest rate differential how are you going to attract this cash to fund these deficits and to my mind The thing that has to give, if the yield curve is not going to be allowed to price in the necessary interest rates, and we know that they can't do this, right? We know that they have to introduce some form of explicit or de facto yield curve control. Well, the variable that has to take the strain is the currency. If you look at the relative size of the Fed's balance sheet, and if they're going to have to backstop this treasury market, right? Their balance sheet is already exploded relative to the ECBs and the BOJs. That's generally been a pretty decent predictor of the value of the currency. And that would also tell you a hell of a lot weaker. And then I think there's a final factor which people don't appreciate. We've talked a lot to clients about what I would recall US exceptionalism. And US exceptionalism, we refer to as a self-reinforcing, true, to use Soros's term, reflexive cycle, whereby as you buy the asset, the appreciation of the asset from your purchase actually encourages you to buy more and feeds strength. So if you think about one of the classic examples was Australia from 2009 to 2013, So cast your mind back to the beginning of 2009, the world had imploded. Then we get the Americans come out with QE. the dollar starts to fall. As the dollar starts to fall, um, the Aussie starts to rise very slightly. As the dollar starts to fall, commodity prices start to stabilize and start to rise. Then the Chinese come out with their big fiscal stimulus. That actually gives a buyer to those commodities. So what you get is you get this virtuous circle where the Aussie is rising, Money is naturally flooding towards Australia. It's flooding towards Australia as well because the commodity sector is booming. As that's happening, the RBA goes, "Ooh, I actually need to raise rates. So they raise rates. More money flows into the Aussie. The Aussie banks borrow that money. They then lend it to their own domestic housing market, which overheats the market even more, which causes the RBA to raise even, rates even further and inflows more money. So you get this truly reflexive, virtuous cycle. But as we saw in 2013, that reflexive cycle, which is virtuous, can turn vicious if you get the wrong the events start to unfold and, and it unwinds. And I think that's a real risk here in the United States. So we've had since really 2011, uh, if you look at the broad trade-weighted dollar index and you put it against the MSCI U.S. versus the MSCI in the rest of the world x the U.S., You'll see the cycles pretty much follow. So what we've had is a rising dollar, which has made foreigners want to own dollar assets. So they've looked around and what have they bought? They bought high yielding corporate debt because it's been the best stuff that has enabled then the corporates to borrow that money, buy back their own stock as they bought back their own stock. The equity market's gone up. So it's even more sexy to go and invest in the U.S., And the Fed's raised rates. No other central banks have raised rates, right? So even more money floods in. And you create this very virtuous cycle if the dollar starts to break because now the Fed, the U.S. isn't that sexy a place to invest. The domestic economy really isn't any. It's arguably worse than some of its peers now around the world. Higher unemployment a weakening domestic oil industry. The corporations can't buy back as much stock because A, it's frowned upon, B, the debt, you know, some of them can't fund themselves in debt. Um, You've got issues now with the banks, right? The banks, you know, can't pay dividends, they can't do buybacks, all these sorts of things. This cycle just suddenly starts to change and it doesn't, you know, it could turn vicious, but it can just crumble a little bit at the edges. And that generally slowly turns the cycle. And to go back to your first question, Niels, If you look at the dollar from 2002 to 2008, it dropped 30% Mm -hmm. in broad trade-weighted terms. The CRB rose threefold. So if you want to see the power of the dollar and where it dictates you should put your assets, that's a very classic example. So that's kind of where I am, as I said, We've come down to these big, long trend lines since 2011, whichever one you want to pick uh, as your poison. We got close to them. The Deutsche Bank twice literally touched it a few weeks ago and then bounced straight off. So we haven't broken yet, but I'm kind of thinking, you know, we will. Maybe it'll take a couple of months. Maybe we'll have to see a little bit more weakness. Maybe we have to see the Fed come in and do they're real QE, because it's been interesting that when you listen to a hawk like Loretta Mester, she came out a few weeks ago, and I thought in a very, very telling speech said, oh, the QE we've done so far really isn't QE. This was just designed to stabilize the financial markets. As the economy starts to recover, that's when we will come out with old-fashioned QE and I'm like, Jesus, what's that? Is that another, you know, 80 billion a month, trillion a year? And the answer is almost certainly. And it'll be masked as a way to probably control yield curve control come September um, to prevent those yields spiking as the US Treasury is just puking out debt.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Rob, what's on your mind today? Uh,
2: quite a lot.
0: <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I saw you yes. taking notes, Rob. So yeah, well, I normally, uh,
2: okay. I normally do about half a page of notes for every speaker. I'm up to two pages for you already, Julian. So uh, okay, but I barely know where to start. Uh, <laughs> I do kind of like the because, and you know, I originally trained as an economist myself. Mm. And I do like the fact you can bring everything back to sort of PPP and essentially the idea that that ultimately it should come down to interest rate differentials and relative inflation and so on. Um, I'm a bit, I think it's kind of interesting to look at valuations of, of, you know, equity and bond markets between, Mm -hmm. say, you know, say US and Europe. Um, I mean, I've always, I felt that the US equity market is overvalued relative to the, Mm -hmm. you know, the UK and European one for quite some time. The UK equity market is kind of famously cheap um, and, and you know, seems destined to remain so. So I can kind of buy the story that everyone's bid up US equities just way too much. It's reached the point now where we're going to, going to start selling them and buying cheaper stuff elsewhere, especially if, as you say, in an economic sense, they're not doing so well. Mm. And I can certainly buy the argument that there's going to be a torrent of of cheap money coming from the Fed. And if you just look at the the raw numbers, you know, the the fiscal stimulus, um, the actual raw numbers of fiscal stimulus in the US, I think are running at something like twice what what we've got in the EU and about three times what we've got in the UK. Um, The the area I'm a little bit more sceptical and it, maybe it won't affect the FX picture so much, but but in terms of the individual markets, if I look at the bond markets, you know, I can still get 65 basis points on US 10 years, which doesn't sound very much until I look across the pond at the 10 basis points I can get here in the UK, and the minus 65 basis points that the, the German government will, will uh, take right. off me for the privilege of lending to them. So I'm just wondering how these... sort of valuations fit together with with the fx you know and and look i i
0: I, I do get that look it'd be definitely if you're a european i mean you are basically being fined as we know you know to to put your money into this thing um i think one's got to be a little careful because remember not all of it goes into the sovereign space right so a lot of it ends up going into some of these other names for example i mean We've written quite a lot extensively about how the Japanese have been quite big buyers and funders of shale, right? They were, um, a lot of the CLO uh, stuff has been owned by, you know, the likes of Noran Chukin and these sort of guys. And so they've actually taken quite a lot of corporate risk on there. And I think that is going to come home and roost. So it's not necessarily just a pure interest rate differential. I think there are some credit concerns uh, in that space. And as I said, I'm a little worried while we played very aggressively this sort of rebound in the speed of growth, that once the dust settles, you'll actually find that some of these growth numbers in the US are pretty damn poor and some of the underlying spaces are pretty damn poor. The other thing I would say is frequently a lot of this stuff is hedged, right? So you can you can reduce that at 65 basis points or you you pick up from there. But look, I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately. I will say that when I talk to a lot of my big bond clients and you know big real money guys who's uh, the numbers you know of AUM just make your mind sort of spin they as i do frequently believe that in a world where you're going to essentially distort the price discovery of a rate differential that fx is where you start expressing your concern so you sort of shift vol kill vol um and they've been big buyers and it's worked incredibly well, as we have been advocating as well, uh, of countries with large current account, relatively large current account surpluses. So don't get me wrong, I get it, you know, in a world where you can get some positive carry in the US. Um, I don't think it's going to disappear overnight, but you've got to balance that against the deficit where that's just going to keep going, 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 going and going. And you're not really going to be heavily compensated for that you know if if the curve was allowed to naturally do what it should do and you were saying oh i'm getting two and a half percent okay i'll take that risk well 65 basis points may not be enough to stop a gradual decline
3: Hey, Julian. Yes. Not a question. More more an observation. Just throwing that in because we're talking about the dollar and I know you're the dollar, the dollar bear and Raúl, for instance, is that dollar bull. One of the things that I've noticed just, you know, following markets throughout the day is that the um, short term correlation between the S&P 500 and Euro US dollar has become increasingly negative over the past two weeks. I don't think there has been a single day where if the S&P 500 is up dollars down if the S&P 500's down dollars up and it's kind right. of like clock, it's kind of like clockwork for the last right. 2 weeks and it hasn't been that strongly negatively correlated in in weeks prior it's it's been a much more independent market so there seems to be something going on there i'm not sure why or why that
0: is we happens. like to do something which i haven't done for a while actually but you remind me i should ask one of my quants to do it and that's you look at the price action of the S&P in the overnight session Versus the intraday session. So, f- for example, heavily moving into uh, the end of last year, what you'd seen as the dollar had strengthened, particularly since 2014, is almost all the vast majority of the gains had come in the overnight session, right, as opposed to the US session. And what it was was this That's right. US exceptionism trade, as Johnny Foreigner said, Oh, look, the euro's going down, yours oh, I've got some dollars. What do I do? Oh, let me go and buy some spoos, right? And you get you get you some S&P futures on. And that's what that did. And then that got flushed out horribly, as we saw in March, where we got that funding squeeze and the euro just exploded, right? Because we were carrying with short euros, long S&Ps. So I haven't looked at what's kind of going on with that flow, but that might be an interesting factor to watch.
3: Yeah, good point. But well, what I'd like to do is, and, and this may get a little spicy here, but <laughs> let, <laughs> let's let's throw in two more currencies into the mix, mm. quote-unquote quote currencies. I'm not sure. You, you need to tell us if you think they are currencies. Gold and Bitcoin. Here we and go. Here we go. Here we, here we go. I, I was waiting for that, Rob. Let's please start with
0: Bitcoin. <laughs> okay. Let me, look, I'm not an expert on Bitcoin, and I'll be the first person to admit that i should have taken this thing more seriously where i kind of got interested in bitcoin really was when it was in the bubble formation look i twitter is a bit of fun it's also a bit of advertising you know you don't give too much away but i do love it you can bait people and you can set them and they all go you know you get all this twitter storm sort of comes through so basically, in, in 2018, early, very, very early 2018, we said, ah, oh, this is a classic bubble. This thing is going to burst, it has all the patterns of the Saudi stock market, for instance, you know, in 2006, the Nasdaq in 2000 it's just parabolic. In fact, it's one, arguably one of the biggest bubbles you'd potentially seen.
3: Oh, yeah. Tulip and Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was just, I mean, the, the rate of change on this thing just made some of these other bubbles just look pedestrian frankly so we did we got it kind of into there and then i just sort of moved away because here's my big problem once when i worked at medley advisors we were on a phone call with a senator from texas and it was around the time of enron's collapse we were talking about the executives at enron and you know what was going to happen and my boss was talking away and we were listening in and the senator just stopped at one point and said you don't understand I don't care what happens to skilling and all these boys I just want them to end up in a big dark hole with a boy called Bubba who calls them Shirley and at that point it just underlined one thing to me and that is the ultimate power of government to dictate your behavior because I've loved saying to people in the bitcoin space, look, I think it's a great trade. You can trade this thing, it's a high beta, you know, for one to store of value, precious metal, whatever. But the day that it ever becomes a big enough thing that it challenges the ability of government to control their own currency, Is the day that you are presented with the option of handing your Bitcoin over in the same way that you did with gold in the 30s or trying to keep hold of it? And if you're caught, ending up in a big dark hole with a bloke called Bubba who calls you Shirley. And frankly, that's why I have never, ever advocated it as an investment. I think there are alternatives Most notably, precious metals, which I don't think this time will garner the same degree of attention in a weak dollar environment that they will ever be confiscated, for want of a better term. I think we've seen that Bitcoin, whether it was Facebook's attempt, whether it's what the Chinese have done, Bitcoin is perceived by governments and central bank as a threat. Okay, I think If you are really trying to preserve the value of your money, sticking in something that could end up getting directly confiscated or end up putting you in a hell of a lot of trouble. And I know these guys will say, yeah, but this is the whole point. I can keep it off in this server and it'll all be safe. And I'll be like, yeah, right. And how the hell are you going to spend it? And what if they catch you and all these sorts of things? It just isn't, to my mind, it's not worth it. But look. Structurally, we've loved gold and silver for quite some time now. I actually prefer silver. We advocated uh, in March to buy, uh, we, we were long silver from the start of last year from like 12 and a half bucks. Um, we were also long gold, GDX, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But silver has really performed very well. In March, we doubled down because the RSI between gold and silver had got to 55-year extremes. And silver's outperformed very significantly. But I do like them because I think there are protections against this collapse of the dollar. And I do like silver because generally it will outperform in a more inflationary stroke reflationary environment. In fact, if you look at the ratio of gold silver, it's pretty much a mirror image of five year break evens. So it really is an inflation play. And that's ultimately where I think we're going to go if I'm right about this dollar. So, yeah, I like them. I think they've come – gold in particular has come quite a long way. I think we need the dollar to take the next leg down. But, I mean, if you look at the chart of silver, which I'm just pulling up as we speak, if you look at a chart of silver and you take it back all the way to 2002 – what you'll see is the high on the dollar occurred, which basically in March of 2002, occurred with the low on silver, which was under four and a half bucks. And then the high on silver occurred with the low on the dollar, which was in uh, April of 2011 at 50. So you want a high beat of balls to the wall, <laughs> short dollar trade, then it's long silver because you could make it's a 10 bagger. 18 and a half to 19 bucks, big resistance, break that. You're off to the low 20s, break that. And really you're off to the mid 20s, break that, sky's the limit.
1: Well, let's uh, see if we can't get um, you to talk about another market. Now we talked about Bitcoin, where clearly there's a limited of the free float. Another uh, area that seems to be getting into the same is things like German government bonds, not a lot of free float anymore. (laughs) as far as I can tell. And, of course, I know the US is different, right? So, if the bond community decides that rates are going up, maybe the Fed can't stop that. But in many other countries, there's not a lot of free float left in bonds. Uh, Mm. Japan, we know, Germany. I mean, how will yields go up again, so to speak? I mean... I don't think they will. Okay.
0: I think, to my mind, this is... When your real financial repression starts, right? Financial repression doesn't start with you buggering around with, you know, minus twenty-five, minus fifty basis points at the front end of the curve. It starts when you peg the long end, and you end up allowing, you know, nominal GDP or, or ideally, nominal GDP made up with real GDP. But of course, nominal GDP has the inflation component and the real component by perhaps allowing inflation to go. And let's not forget when the Fed ended their experiment with yield curve control in the 50s, we had 19% CPI and 1.5% 10-year yield. So I'm afraid that I don't think, and I've advocated this to my wealth management clients, that the bond market is anywhere where you want to have long-term exposure. I think this is where you end up losing inordinate quantities of real money, and when I say real, inflation-adjusted money for your clients. I mean, I think everyone knows about the inflation of the 70s, but what they forget is the vast majority of the money that was lost in the bond market occurred in the late 60s as inflation went from one and a half to yeah, just under six in 1969. Bond yields went from two to four to eight. Real yields fell. And in inflation-adjusted terms, in five years, Five years, you lost a third of your money in the treasury market, right? Duration, long-dated duration exposure, courtesy of convexity, given this level of bond yields, is just going to destroy people if they let it go. But, I I mean, maybe they do a little bit. I don't think they let it go too far, so maybe you won't lose so much money. Um, But you're going to lose it in inflation adjusted terms, I think, because they can't allow yields to rise, They're just going to sit there and destroy wealth. This is how wealth gets redistributed from the wealthy, rich, old to the young millennials who need pay rises so they don't riot and so they can afford to buy that house. To my mind, this is the way we're going. And if the market doesn't do it efficiently, politicians are going to do it for you. And you can already see that pattern emerging even here in the united states right we're looking at someone like a biden who's talking about all of these policies reversing the trump tax cuts do we get a wealth tax perhaps do we get higher wages definitively we've always you know we've got all these new heroes of covid you know but these are basically people on many cases close to minimum wage right so what does minimum wage go to 20 bucks an hour 25 bucks an hour all of these sorts of things these are all going to be I think, highly inflationary in an environment where you're funding it from government spending, which should steepen a curve, but they can't let it happen. So they just cap the whole thing and you as a bondholder just get obliterated. So I hate to say it, Niels, I just, I love the fixed income market. We've made lots of money for our clients over the year, but the only thing that I want our clients to own now is inflation protection.
1: No, I mean, I completely agree with that. And it worries me when I see, especially in Europe, the way that say pension funds are positioned i mean germany i think there's like 80% bonds and 20% something else i mean and, right. you know and i mean it is bloody scary because at some point and the, the other thing i think in all of this is actually you believe in cycles you talk about them i mean there is also mm. certainly a cycle that goes from public to private meaning at some Correct. point the equities will become the safe haven and anyth- anything linked to a government is going to be trashed really right. so um and which is also why these conversations are important right because i'm not so sure that the i mean there's a lot of wrong information so to be so just to, to say politely being fed to to investors correct and also because a lot of us i mean i started out as a bond trader back in the 80s yep. and um i remember when the german when the berlin one uh draw you know fell and that led to some uh, interesting times if you were correct. long bonds and Correct. and you've realized that you can lose a hell of a lot of money in bonds yep. in a short space of time. So we forget about these things because a lot of people have not experienced this. And and the other way to think about it is that a lot of the people who either advise or even trade today in the markets have never seen a real interest rate cycle where interest rates go
0: up. Correct. And I also think as well, we've got to understand that there's an awful lot of people. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I was very keen to join Raul, when he launched Real Vision, which was, you know, he calls this a democratization of, let's say, what the smart money is thinking. We forget that the vast majority of people are advised by individuals and institutions whose only real interest is to accumulate assets, not to make money. What they really want you to do is continuously be invested in the german bond fund or the german pension fund that is 80 percent fixed income and 20 percent and they'll constantly talk around this thing as though it's still got some value where in actual fact they lose the sight of the bigger cycle and if you can get into these things at the right point then you know you can make your your guys an inordinate amount of money right an inordinate amount of money and one guy on twitter come and say after our silver call i paid for my mortgage i, I don't want to consider for a nanosecond how much money he was putting at risk to enable him to pay for his mortgage which probably wasn't good money management techniques at all but these things can make a material difference to people and that's why i'm happy to appear on programs like yourself because i really think that at a time like this a massive inflection point i mean i've called this a generational inflection Mm. point okay in terms of macro and actually in terms of of societal changes right fourth turning people forget you're sitting in the middle of europe there and moritz is is managing money for a german firm but i mean you know let's not forget there was this little bloke called martin luther who hung around um uh, as all the catholic priests fled out to their country properties when we had the black death who stayed and helped and guess what that was the cycle high of catholicism that was a relatively big turning point in history pandemics Kind of do that. 1848, Louis the Philippe fled France and lived under Queen Victoria's skirt hem uh, until he died in sort of 1870. Spanish flu, women's votes, all of these things. This is going to be a really, really important inflection point historically and I think in markets because we were coming to this inflection point anyway. You know, we peaked in interest rates, we were already close to zero. We have to come up with a new toy to keep the cycle going. And I think essentially where we are now, we have hit the end of traditional monetary policy. Monetary policy now is an adjunct to fiscal spending. So central banks now basically are just a supporting act to fiscal authorities. And I think that just changes the whole world that we've lived in since Paul Volcker came in in 79.
1: Yeah, and and Rob, before you jump in, And that is actually one thing we have spoken about on our podcast, even before we did the global macro series. And that is, we are in the middle of the fourth turning. If you believe in that, Uh, you know that we say that history doesn't repeat exactly. But I mean, what they wrote in 1991
0: is the end of the winter, the fourth turning. These factors were coming, and I'm putting together a presentation now. And you look at social unrest, and you look at these pinpricks that have occurred, particularly with these tragic riots. And Black Lives Matter protests in the United States. I mean, this is emblematic of this sort of societal turning that you would get and combine that with the, the the macro turning point. And this is when people really, really, really need to be careful about their wealth.
2: I'm really a bit confused about what to think as I'm both Catholic and also started off as an, an interest rate options trader. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? I mean, all the free money from risk parity is gone because there's, there's, no, yes. there's no money. It's,
0: all, it's a remarkable that the strategy is actually done well. Yes. But people don't realise that essentially the strategy now is walking dead Yeah, because the underlying philosophy just doesn't work because right? well, bonds are never going to act as the hedge again.
2: Yeah. Well, that, this is it. You've got a breakdown both in terms of the fact that the one of the assets is Definitely massively overvalued, which is the bond component. Yep. You've also got the fact that correlation is probably going to break down because yep. in an inflationary environment, bonds and equities tend to become more in- inflated. Yes. So let's go back to the the kind of hypothetical man on the street who's listening yep. to this, or woman on the street, mm-hmm. who's listening to this podcast and wants to know what can I do? I mean, you've mentioned silver being an asset that is a good inflationary hedge. And, and I, I like the fact you've gone beyond the kind of classic of just reaching for gold as the gold standard inflationary hedge, mm-hmm. if you, excuse the pun. Yep. Stocks as an inflationary hedge, obviously, we can have a long debate about whether they are or not. Mm -hmm. Maybe it depends on how volatile the inflation is rather than the actual level as to whether they're a good inflation hedge. But are there specific sectors we should be looking at or are there other assets we haven't mentioned that that would be good hedges in this environment?
0: One thing that really marks, I think, inflation is it's a tougher trading environment. It's not uh, necessarily an unprofitable one. It's a much, much tougher one. So passive investment, I'm afraid, is peaked if I'm right. This is becomes a, where you really do start to earn your money. One of the things actually it has been quite interesting talking to wealth managers is just the dearth of good quality commodity trading funds out there, right? I mean, I started as a young whippersnapper in my early 20s trading precious metals for Philip Brothers that then bought Salomon and then somehow got management bought out and became part of Salomon Brothers. It just... It was it was a bizarre thing. But I mean, those guys that I started with who were the most aggressive traders in the most volatile market have all gone standing in the lunch line and listening to some guy saying, you know, how did you do, Roger? Pretty well. We just bought all the bloody India's and China's excess rice and we sailed it off in bulk carriers off the uh, off the coast, they're bloody appalling harvests. The price doubled. We sailed it back in, you know, those sorts of days are gone. That The sort of balls that it took to those sort of trades have, have gone. So finding people to manage some of this money is going to be actually quite hard. It might come down to, and this way of something like, you know, systematic trend following commodity funds actually might start to do pretty well in a ones that can go short as well as long in a bull market so but I do think that's something you've got to have as part of the portfolio we've been advocating even as far as things like some of the agricultural commodities which you've yet to take off um, I think it's quite amusing that in COVID those got crushed precious metals didn't last time I looked we were still eating in fact probably some of us eating too much during COVID because we had nothing else to do um, and yet commodity prices got absolutely, soft commodity prices got absolutely trash. So I quite like those. Um, but you only have those as a relatively small part of the potentially as a portfolio. I don't think you want to have any long-dated sovereign risk at all. In the credit space, I think there was really potentially interesting trades or there were until the Fed distorted price. And this, I think, is the fundamental problem. Because if you looked at it and you say, OK, well, look, I think we're going into a period of inflation. There are two companies out there. They've both got pretty shitty balance sheet, but one has, let's say, pricing power. One has none. Let's say the one has none is a a retail chain. I can be long one, short the other, and they're both the prices the same now. In five years' time, one will have doubled and one will not exist anymore. Those are great opportunities for credit managers, but it's much harder now, given that you've got central banks distorting credit. But let's assume they kind of back out of that space a little bit over time. I do think there is, once again, there's, uh, opportunities in credit. But once again, it's going to be a lot harder than just buying the tracker, right? Because everything is just not going to go up. I think there are great opportunities for dollar-based investors potentially in emerging markets if the dollar does start to roll. But once again, you're sort of increasing your exposure to that dollar trade and you're ex- you're doubling up on your exposure in the, sort of the commodity space. Equities just have to be part of the mix. They do have to be part of the mix. But you're gonna to have to manage. you either gonna to have to accept the hell of a lot higher vol, or you're gonna to have to run some sort of overlay type product to try and somehow manage that risk-off thing that, that theoretically bonds are gonna hedge you for but won't anymore. So it's it is a much more difficult environment going forward. It is a much more active environment going forward, and I think that people are going to have to start understanding that paying for performance which we used to do before we just aimlessly bought things that went up is a solution because growth stocks these you know some of these names will not do well in a higher inflationary environment they will they will underperform you know we're still not at the inflationary inflection point i don't think it occurs until some of my models are starting to tick up in sort of October-ish, September, October-ish. Some of them start early next year. But I think we're, it's not really yet that you have to consider it, but you're going to get there quite damn quickly.
3: Final question for me, Julian. It's yes, been, This has been great, but I want to be respectful of the time that mm. you've given us today. I've watched that great interview between Hugh Hendry and Richard Verner on Real Vision. I'm not mm. sure if you've watched it. but no. uh, You you did, but so what Richard Werner said is, he said the ECB is essentially the only central bank left in the world that is completely and utterly above the law. They don't report to anyone. And I don't have the feeling that the... I'd like to hear your opinion on that. What about the Fed? You know, the Feds, you know, uh, used to be independent, at least at what they said, but right now it's kind of like, you know... uh, Donald Trump, the president, is twisting the arm of Mr. Powell, and uh, the, the, the thing kind of like becomes, becomes one, the Fed and the government.
0: Yes, we've discussed this. So, if you, since Trump really got in, actually, we've been playing a cycle which, in many respects, was like the mid to late 60s. So, you early 60s, you have a very stable, super low uh, inflation rate. No one back then was running around going, oh, you know, the sky is falling, inflation's too low because we didn't have quite the same debt levels. And it really was a halcyon period of economic growth. And then you got some politically inspired uh, fiscal spending related to the Great Society in the beginning of the Vietnam War. You push inflation out of its comfort zone. It'd been, I mean, literally a flat line for us for five years. And the Fed's own research said it could have taken a shorter period of two years of higher inflation for inflation expectations to become unanchored, to use their parlance. And um, you get quickly into this period where things get out of control. And one of the reasons they get out of control is because the Fed compromise. So back then, we also had an independent Fed. And the chairman uh, was a gentleman called William Martin. Now... William or Bill Martin actually became the longest standing Fed president uh, in history. And as this spending sort of kicked off, the Fed initially was quite aggressive at trying to cramp down on that inflation push that you got going into 1966. And then there was a lot of pushback from government. Wait a second, we're fighting a war. We're trying to do these things for individuals. What are you doing? And... Bill Martin went away and he came back um, and he decided, and he coined this fantastic phrase where he said, the Fed is independent within government rather than independent of government. And that basically meant if it is the will of the people to elect this government and this government decides that they want to do it, it is not for the Fed to fight against the will of the people. So I think that's essentially where we are. The Fed has decided, and really very willingly, I mean, it hasn't taken much for Powell to get there, that they have a responsibility to support the government if the will of the people, which clearly is, is for the government to support them. And so I think we have a very complicit central bank there's certainly no Volcker esque type tendencies anywhere within this central bank anymore. Those things were taken out, I think, in 08, taken out to the back of the bike shed and shot through the forehead. To me, this is setting up. And this, once again, it goes back to these cycles we talked about, Niels, right? That you go through these periods where you build up extremes. Those extremes become unacceptable to voters or to society in general. And then you switch the other way. And I think we've switched the other way and you've got a central bank that I think fundamentally believes that if inflation ever happens, don't worry, we will be on top of it. But of course, that's what they thought in the mid-60s. They thought they could run it a little hot, to use today's type uh, language. And they were bloody wrong because as soon as they tried to do anything to stop it, the government came in and said, don't you damn well dare think about doing that. So I would agree with you. I don't think the Fed's independent. I don't think the Bank of England's really independent. We've already seen the Bank of England start funding the Ways and Means Fund, this little sort of fudge account that they have on the side, right, where they can just top it up with electronic cash. And they say, oh, don't worry, it's only short term. Well, if the economy doesn't recover robustly, that short term will become increasingly longer term.
1: Short term is all relative, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Perhaps... My final question to you, Julian, is just having done what you do for a long time, does classic of sort of macro analysis, has that become harder to do? Because we kind of live in a world where we think some of the things, at least that we're seeing happening, we think this is completely nuts, right? It's completely crazy. Or is it really just trying to take out the noise, look at the facts, look at the cycles, and actually it still all makes sense?
0: There are days when we wake up and I go, geez, I could have picked an easier job than trying to front run the global financial markets and get it right, because that's ultimately what clients pay Mm -hmm. for and get it right. But I will say I'm somewhat lucky. Firstly, I've got within MI2 four colleagues who have either... One exec, Bank of England. He worked with me at Medley Global Advisors. I think that's a very important part of my background because I understood firsthand, as we were policy consultancy, the importance of, of policy, central bank or fiscal. And I really understood how that started to interplay with markets. And I think that's given us a bit of a of a of a, a leg up versus some of our client colleagues who or peers who might just look purely at the macro. I've always said earlier, I look at the macro because the macro dictates the policy response. And this has certainly been the MO since really 2008. And it's that policy response that drives markets. So it's kind of a two-step process opposed to that the macro drives markets, because that isn't really the case. We've also got guys who've manage billion dollar a couple of guys who manage billion dollar portfolios hedge funds so we really are then we take it and we look at the macro that gives us a lean a bias to maybe what the policy response is going to do and then we have guys who said okay if that's what you think this is the trade it's break-evens it's bund treasury spreads it's the euro it's the aussie oh and by the way here's the level breaking today and we should send something out to our clients so i think We are actually moving back into a more macro environment. I think we are going to see some differentiation between, particularly on the currency side, that start to drive relative asset performance. I would love to say that I think the bond market is going to come back and we're all going to be able to make a fortune trading curve steepeners and so on and so forth. But I'm a little bit more sanguine. I think what we're really all going to have to do is we're going to have to dust off some old books about how to trade backwardations, contangos, and stuff like that in commodity markets, which we've all bloody forgotten how to do. Absolutely.
1: Well, Julian, thank you so much for spending some of your afternoon with us. We really do appreciate this, as I'm sure all of our listeners do. And by the way, make sure to follow and subscribe to Julian's work on Twitter, uh, MI2Partners and Global Macro Insiders. As you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a true global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Rob, Morton, and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro miniseries. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.